Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. Hi, Carly. Hi. Welcome. Uh, and today we are joined by a good friend of the program, uh, joining us all the way from Beirut, the extremely jet-lagged Seamus Malikavzali is on the show today. Seamus, welcome back to Hit Factory. Hi. Uh, honored to be on the program once more. We are very pleased, very blessed to have you on the program today uh, to talk about a great movie. Uh, but I, I feel like we've we've got to address this early on. I, I was thinking maybe we'd we'd save it for the end, um, but it, it feels weird to do that right now, and especially having you on the program to not just briefly say just like thank you <laughs> to you uh, and and the work that you do and and uh, all the reporting, all the writing that you've been doing um, uh, about the ongoing siege in Gaza right now and and just uh, the the breadth of the experience of the Palestinian people and and the horrors that they're facing right now um, you are a voice of clarity you're a, a voice of sanity amidst all of just like the the absolute chaos on the internet right now and of, of course probably getting shadow banned daily for that <laughs> for being just like one of the more virtuous people uh, online at the moment but uh, you know, I've, I've said it before online and, and I'll say it to you just while we have you, like, thank you for everything you do. It's, it's such a blessing to know you, to call you a friend and to be able to like see the world through your eyes and, and have you be a, a voice, um, in our orbit. I don't think I deserve that, but thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that. You definitely do, Seamus. Uh, you know, I, we, we haven't talked about it a lot on, on the program. I've been recording episodes about fucking movies now for you know the past 30 days i I think as of like by the time this episode's out we'll have uh you know been experiencing 30 30 plus days now of this conflict and and no real end in sight and it's weird it's it's an odd time to be like producing content and talking about shit that isn't uh you know that has nothing to do with with that um but we're going to try our best and and do that and i'm i'm really thankful to you Seamus for suggesting uh to to come on the show and and bringing a great movie for us today uh for being willing to uh even in you know like i said your jet lag state and just uh taking taking the room to to discuss with us today so so thank you for that as well the only person i would come out of uh my under under my rock for right now is <laughs> is Seamus <laughs> really and truly yeah <laughs> you truly, are why truly, I'm here truly an honor truly an honor um with that out of the way we will try to talk about uh, a movie today and and have a little bit of fun with it because it is uh one of the the greats of the entire decade we're talking yet again uh, about the brilliant Martin Scorsese and his 1995 picture Casino. Nobody's gonna interfere with you running the casino. On November 22nd. Look at this place, it's made of money. From acclaimed director Martin Scorsese comes the motion picture event of the year. Robert De Niro. Don't you see what's at stake? Sharon Stone. I will burn the police! Joe Pesci. You only exist out here because of me! You realize what you can do? You can get us all killed! Casino. Starts Wednesday, November twenty second at theaters everywhere. Uh, Casino, I think, other than Goodfellas, I, I picked it just because it has been in my memory since I was a child. Um, since before I even saw it, I knew lines from it. Um, <laughs> my my father 
a very popular video that he had on um, numerous times uh, when I was a kid was um, a version of the scene of um, Joe Pesci and De Niro in the desert. Um, but uh, the characters from Sesame Street were saying them. <laughs> <laughs> so I <laughs> I saw that numerous times as a kid. Um like I, I was very familiar with like how you say like you know I got to deal with like your fucking shit like Pesci <laughs> says um, <laughs> I was familiar with that um, like the imagery of like Ace Rothstein um, how Pesci looks in this um, the whole the whole aura and like sheen that this film has is something that I I was really familiar with as a very early age and it kind of formed. A tiny bit how like I saw film period as a kid. It's a very weird feeling to try to articulate now, um, but no, no. Casino has been there in my life for a very, very long time, and it's a, and it's a strange thing to to say as someone who was not alive when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I want to ask you to expand if you if you can a little bit more on this idea that it informed how you look at film more broadly i i it's a very nebulous thing like i think this is more of a more of a aspect of like how films in the late 1990s looked but the specific way it was color graded Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. the, the way i wish i had better ways of describing it um just the the way that that again they use that word the sheen that was applied to it is how I thought movies were like supposed to work like how the sun looked. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very particular way that you can't get with digital now. Uh, obviously, it had to. It, it's something that only comes, I think, from shooting on film. Um, but no, that that's how I thought films were were supposed to supposed to look. For yeah, sure, yeah, completely. Completely. And I mean, what you're talking about there, just like that, that filmic quality to it, like the, the literal filmic quality of it, right? That it, that it looks like it was shot on celluloid uh, is one of the reasons I love this so much. It's so rich. The palette, the colors, uh, the, the costuming, the lights, all of it is just so dizzying. Uh, we watched it uh, on a 4k disc release and Seamus I know that you watch this on uh he's he, <laughs> Seamus is, is flashing the 4k uh at us at the moment I it- I went to I, I I of course I saw my mother because I love my mom I'm on if you're listening <laughs> um but I went to the UK specifically to see my mother and also she was gonna <laughs> bring me this 4k that I ordered because I couldn't get it in Lebanon oh my God. that is how much I, I love this film all right. It's it's fantastic. It looks beautiful uh, on that transfer, and uh, I mean, if if it's n- won't embarrass you, I'll I'll share though, Seamus, the the anecdote that you uh, shared with me earlier this week that uh, at the moment you're without a dedicated 4K player, so rather than getting to experience it on the disc, you did the next best thing, which is just download an 82 gigabyte. Uh, file of the 4K transfer <laughs> to I your computer. It has to be look, look, look. People, compression is good for for a great many things in this world. However, <laughs> if I want to see it as it was meant to be seen, I need the lossless rip of it. I want to see it how it was meant to be seen. So fine, <laughs> I'll, I'll take 82 gigabytes. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
and you only have to keep it on your hard drive for you know a little <laughs> bit longer uh, and, sure. until you get that dedicated 4K player. You, you have to keep it there until the end of the episode only, and then you can delete it forever. Exactly. Uh, my experience with this movie is uh, somewhat the opposite of yours, Seamus. Oh. Uh, we were speaking about this off mic prior to us getting on, but this is the very first time that I have seen the Martin Scorsese film Casino. Uh, I have been a big fan of Marty for a long time. I've, I've seen a great many of his films, and I think it was probably a, a couple years ago now when I first watched Bringing Out the Dead. Uh, and then when I rewatched it for our episode on that uh, film with our good friend Donald Bornstein, uh, that I realized that the 90s Scorsese was actually where I had the most blind spots. I had seen Goodfellas, of course, many a time. And I think maybe, you know, for me, Goodfellas was sort of what Casino is to you, Seamus, the one that I kind of grew up uh, in and around and, and knowing moments from even before I had seen it in full uh, I had seen Cape Fear uh, a handful of years ago at this point, just because uh, I don't know why. I heard it was a good thriller. It is a good thriller. Great performances all around in that. Uh, and then I had seen Bringing Out the Dead, but all those kind of middle interstitial films I had not seen. Uh, and, and even now, Age of Innocence, I just watched a couple of weeks ago. Uh, loved it. I think it's beautiful, uh, masterful, wonderful film. Uh, now I've seen this one. Still have Kundun to to watch so I can't uh, echo Christopher Maltesanti yet and say whether or not I liked it or not uh, but what a treat to watch this now and I think that having seen it at this period specifically in Scorsese's career maybe made me enjoy it even more than I otherwise would have because I think that there are some very interesting parallels to a lot of what he does in his late period and specifically with The Irishman that feels like it enriches this film's text uh, and also makes it feel like something of an inflection point rather than just like a retread of the gangster stuff that he was doing in Goodfellas. It, it, it feels even more apart from Goodfellas than it otherwise would have. And I, and I think that those accusations of it being just a, a simple retread are already, you know, kind of just patently false. Uh, but now knowing where his career has gone, uh, I think it makes it even more rewarding to come to this and enjoy it now. Carly, what is your experience with Casino? I first saw this film on television <laughs> um, because it was like playing on TNT or something. And uh, I stopped. This is going to sound like uh, an exaggeration because of how much it makes sense for me, but I assure you this is actually what happened. I stopped flipping the channels because it was uh, showing me a scene with Sharon Stone in it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whatever is happening here, I want to watch this <laughs> because <laughs> she looks incredible in the movie. And I was like stunned by her outfit. I think it was the that sort of like rainbow, um, like, three-piece satin thing that she has yeah. when he's first showing her the closet, the big closet that he's mm, gotten her. Yeah. Um, and so I watched the film. I didn't really understand fully what was going on because I came like, you know, partway through and I was like a child. Um, but then like when I <laughs> got older, you? came back to it um, and, and actually watched, uh, watched the whole thing and, and really, really loved it. 
and have seen it a couple times but hadn't seen it in years um up until us watching it for this conversation and what i have seen since then is bringing out the dead um which i think is a masterpiece and probably i'm just gonna go on record as saying like my favorite martin scorsese movie i just i think it's gorgeous and i'm a paul schrader head so um i'm all for it it. I'll, i'll believe it it's gorgeous. I I think it's incredible. Um, and I actually found myself making a lot of um, connections between this film and that movie, which comes out in 1999, um, a few years after this film. And I think that there are a lot of um, a lot of things that Marty is trying with sort of like twisted camera angles and flipping things around and zooming in really quickly that he does to great effect in uh bringing out the dead and um i will get into the ways that i think uh the protagonists are similar but i will just say that i really really enjoyed this watch and feel like i was able to appreciate it more having seen what he did directly after um this movie I I just wanted to say to to Aaron who was talking about he mentioned the Irishman uh in particular in trying to compare this I uh, see the parallels in this film the thing that stuck out to me cuz I saw the Irishman most of it the day before I saw this so it was all kind of fresh in my mind and I was struck by how they both seem to be about a man who is within this this mafioso kind of life, but fundamentally is so obsessed with the minutia of getting it done that he has no fun with it whatsoever. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. uh, is is constantly uh, either fucking himself over or getting fucked by somebody else, and then and the end has virtually nothing to show for it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not like, yeah, yeah, and it's not a reach. It doesn't feel like a reach out of Goodfellas because Goodfellas, what is the appeal of that film that people keep coming back to and back to? Uh, you know, the stuff near the opening with the cookouts and the old school kind of values. Um, whereas this, I mean, there are all of these materialistic things that are, are really focused on all of the jewelry, all of the the, the different clothes, all the houses, but it, it's so fleeting and it's so, I mean, fundamental. I mean, of course at a base level, it's, it's completely hollow and Sharon Stone's character enjoys it very briefly. And Robert De Niro's character, um, his enjoyment of it is also very surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's it's just it's just a it's just a parade of things that are ostensibly supposed to give you fulfillment and enjoyment, and he's just getting nothing out of that for <laughs> three three and a half hours around. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's it's a great it's a great trudgery through that. Um, uh, but of course, in the Irishman, where uh, Robert De Niro's character has no fancy house, no um, no gigantic walk-in closets, no uh, the uh, Roland Aces. What was this show called? 
The um, ace is high. Ace is high. Yeah. That's right. Ace is high. He has no. He has no ace is high. No. No uh, late night show. Uh, I still don't hear the mechanics of that. He has. Yeah. He's just. He's just in his house doing all these things to the mafia, and he gets. Yeah. Almost nothing out of it. It's a distinctly like a a, a wind down from that for sure. But it's of mm-hmm. those same values. I think of those same themes. I like what you're saying, Seamus, because it it makes me think of something that I felt on this watch of the film which is that it's a kind of perfect movie to encapsulate this feeling that we had in the 90s specifically of this sort of like faux prosperity Mm -hmm. um and all of this hyper focus on consumerism and like you know uh the the sort of seeming abundance of wealth um of america in the 1990s and De Niro in narration says at a certain point that Vegas is um, is like the perfect city to to represent the American dream that you can come and kind of like wash yourself clean and become this new person and make something of yourself. And we, of course, see in the film that that's not true at all, (laughs) Um, that it's deeply chaotic and violent um, and miserable. They are all miserable, to your point, Um, and that the the feelings of joy that they may get from a a bulgari bracelet or um you know a nice sherbet colored suit are are equally as fleeting and also that for someone like sam rothstein who under the conceit of the meritocracy by all intents and purposes should like be happy and and be um, and be really enjoying his success because he works so hard. But ultimately, we see that like the structural powers, the the symbiosis between these um, huge systems of of power and oppression at work um, in the form of the mob and um, you know state uh, senators and things like that, which I took to extrapolate largely outward towards you know like the police and like military and the American government and all that stuff, which like I'm reading it cause I want to that way, but that those systems of power will only let him get so far. Right. And that this promise of like, if you work hard, if you're a perfectionist, if you, you know, are really someone that applies yourself that like you will not only be wealthy, but you will be happy. You will, you will be content with your life and ultimately he's not and i think that that is like a perfect um summation of like the the lie of the american dream and does actually make vegas a perfect encapsulation of what the american dream is about because it is all falsehoods Mm -hmm. and it is all this faux um you know glitz and glamour and like abundance of wealth and beneath is just something deeply sinister and also just pure abject misery. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like Vegas in this is constructed. I mean, it's very hellish. It's very nightmarish. And it, it almost like those opening scenes where you see the blackness surrounding like the neon lights, like kind of on the, the strip there, um, the, the constant sort of evocation of the vastness of the desert surrounding it and how just like kind of like arid and empty it all is outside of this like single hub of you know wealth and excess there is like 
and maybe not even hell like it feels almost like purgatorial it feels like kind of a prison almost like the once once they get there there's no real way out of the systems that oppress them and and the the kind of weight of all of it despite the fact that they are occasionally materially rewarded you know and live comfortable lifestyles like all of these characters whether it's de niro or pesci or stone like they essentially like seal their fates from the moment they step foot in the desert in the casino the cardinal rule is to keep them playing and keep them coming back the longer they play the more they lose in the end we get it all god damn it in Vegas, everybody's got to watch everybody else. Since the players are looking to beat the casino, the dealers are watching the players. The boxmen are watching the dealers. The floormen are watching the boxmen. The pit bosses are watching the floormen. The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The casino manager is watching the shift bosses. I'm watching the casino manager. And the eye in the sky is watching us all. To, to comment on the prison thing, the way that it's stitched together, I, th- I remember the vibe that was given off by the city and Goodfellas, where it really felt like there were certain neighborhoods. Um, everything felt a thing a bit more fluid. Here, everyone is kind of on their own island, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the neighborhood, the, the the kind of I don't know if it's a gated community that Rothstein and um, Ginger uh, live in, where all the where all the cops know who he is. Yeah, um, the strip itself, uh, and all the um, the, the the like the shitty um, jewelry stores that <laughs> um, Pesci's character starts going to. They all, I, 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 again, I wish I had better words to articulate myself with, but it's, it really captures how a lot of these American cities outside the coasts feel where there is this kind of endless sprawl um, where there, there's, this, there's this great big nothingness mm-hmm. uh, in between them. Where mm-hmm. you kind of have to try and and make a living a life for yourself, but it's it's very fundamentally empty. Um, I, I may be reading a bit too much into that, but no. uh, <laughs> thank you. But no, you're not. Um, no. no, but it's it, it's just I I really it felt it felt oppressive in a way, and especially it had become more potent to me because I had spent about three weeks uh, back in Eugene, Oregon, which while beautiful. Um, has massive parts of its uh, downtown that are just everything's so far apart from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the like there's four lane highways, um, very near restaurants. It's it's a very <laughs> upsetting kind of place in a lot of respects, and I, I felt that here. Yeah, and and Vegas is interesting because it is designed like the way the city is built and the way that the uh, architecture is um, is built uh, and connected is such that um, you don't have to ever leave any of the hotels. You can walk the length of the strip yep. staying inside and 
Um, and anyone who's been to Vegas knows that like uh, that feeling of like just being trapped in the in the space is one that is by design and it's one to keep you gambling and mm-hmm. not knowing if it's light or dark outside. Um, being outside in Vegas in the daylight is a completely horrifying experience. It's terrible. It is absolutely terrible being on the strip during the daytime. It's awful. Um, and they, you know, they kind of want it to be that way, right? Because they don't want you to go outside and and do something else. But I actually think that um, I'm going to slightly complicate your argument about the vastness of the desert and say that we don't spend a lot of time seeing places and spaces outside of the hotels and Mm -hmm. the casinos um Mm. and the camera is often pushed in very close on the people that we are watching um we get some stuff in the house this beautiful house that sam and ginger live in and we get some sort of like okay now we're in the midwest and it's snowy and there's like a garage or like a grocery store like we we aren't always in in a casino but for a good portion of the movie we are um and we're surrounded by showgirls and jewels and like these deep dark reds of like velvet and carpets and all these things and um, and it does feel like you are trapped in this space with these characters. And it adds to this sort of like manic, this manic energy that the film has that Vegas itself has when you are, um, when you're first there for like a couple of days. And then it, it no longer becomes mania. It becomes this sort of excruciating drag. It's this sense that Scorsese has a perspective about kind of like modern America, mm-hmm. that there is something inherently sinister in the landscaping of spaces. Yeah. It, to kind of connect both your points here as well, you know, Seamus, you brought up Goodfellas, um, which I feel like we'll probably do a, a few more times on this episode, frankly, just spoiler for the listeners. Um, but you you kind of talked about sort of like the, the atomization of the existence of all of these characters within this bustling, loud, you know, like glitzy kind of space. And I rewatched uh, a little bit of Goodfellas in preparation for this. And it was the thing that I immediately connected to in, in that film, which is like, you know, beyond the fact that it, I think, is a, a distinct part of like a trilogy along with Casino and now The Irishman, where it's kind of like the young upstarts establishing themselves versus this movie's kind of like middle management woes. Uh, the thing that I, I noticed so much about it is that like they kept referencing either, you know, in the narrative or, or in the voiceover, this concept of the community that was mm-hmm. built around it, you know, that it engenders. Uh, at one point, uh, Ray Liotta's uh, Henry Hill says something where he's like, oh, you know, like the thing that people didn't get about is that like all these guys did was like offer protection for the neighborhood. Like they all they did was like for the people that the cops weren't going to take care of, they were just going to like apply pressure and make sure that people felt safe. Namely, you know, the the people doing organized crime and also, you know, like, uh, you know, stomping on some of like the local business owners. But, you know, the, the, the whoa, point stands. Whoa, I don't, Aaron, this kind of historical <laughs> revisionism. The, the, the police were oppressing the Italian-Americans in these communities and they right. couldn't, had no one to turn to. That's yeah, right. Um, You're correct. And, 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 uh, addition, and additionally, as, as um, just as a little point in that. The only times that I think the, like a larger community 
is referenced in Casino is either when uh, Nikki is talking about how he uses Little League games to yeah. uh, spy <laughs> on Metro Cops, uh, <laughs> or when they're trying to kick, uh, when they're trying to get Ginger uh, to, to stop destroying Ace's house. Yeah. Right. Um, because it's scaring everybody. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a distinct feeling there for sure. For sure, and and even you know in Goodfellas too, Lorraine Bracco's character, you know, there are those early scenes after they're married where she starts like going to like hostess parties and stuff like that with like the rest of the like wives of you know the guys who are are, are made men or you know like the the low level enforcers and stuff, and they're talking very nonchalantly about like oh, I can't talk about this, you know, transgression that this guy committed, you know, or like the way this guy like cat called me or whatever, because like, you know, Joey will go over with a gun and kill him, whatever. And she's terrified of it. But at the same time, too, there's like, again, community, there's sort of like this solidarity amongst them as like, you know, the, the wives of these made men. And Ginger in Casino never gets that she is a a prisoner twice over she is stuck in her like station and in her situation and then also in this like really caustic horrible marriage to to ace as well uh can we can we use this as a segue to talk about sharon stone uh at length let's um, please talk please about sharon stone. i talk okay sharon i stone. i i if i may um i say this with all uh the respect uh, the honor uh, that I could possibly give. Um, I firmly believe that uh, Sharon Stone is one of the most beautiful women ever to live uh, on this planet. Um, <laughs> yep. One of those women that you know that if you saw in real life, you would start like forgetting how to say things. Yes. That, that kind of lady. Um, no, she, I think in particular, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. Um, no, uh, don't. I, this, this, you're starting. You're starting to sweat. I don't want to be. I, I don't want to be. Want our podcast to be I, talking about how hot Sharon Stone. I mean, is. that's a, that's an important part of this film. Absolutely. I would also say that that Scorsese also understands how to how to shoot her in a way that I think other directors wouldn't, and I think it's a very it's a way that evokes her beauty, but also is not leering in any mm-hmm. kind of way whatsoever. It's very much recognizing like the power in it i think yes. in particular about the the scene that really sticks out in my mind as like maybe one of the best shots in his whole filmography if i if i had to be honest with myself is when nikki goes over to ace's uh place and meets ginger for the first time yes and ginger comes out in that um the purple i think silk uh, two piece with um, yep. the bell bottoms, and mm-hmm. there's a triple punch in on her face, and it's like it, there's no there's no musical sting. Music that's like a light lo-fi type type thing in the background. All you see is Sharon Stone's face, and then a silent cut to Nikki's face, and it's just you understand it immediately. Yep, like this is a woman who will throw. Even if this was the most honorable, <laughs> like like the perfect woman in emotion, temperament, uh, everything, that is a wrecking ball through yes. everyone <laughs> she touches. 
Um, it, it's it's a really it's a perfect casting choice. Mainly, uh, like before this, what she had done, Total Recall, and she had done um, Basic, Basic Instinct. Instinct. Basic Instinct, was yeah, the big one, yeah, yeah. But she had mostly been, other than that, well, she, in addition to Basic Instinct, she had been doing a lot of like femme fatale roles, but in very, I think, trashier movies for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then, because she had been, I think, nominated for a Razzie a couple times. Whatever the fuck. Which motherfuckers. Fuck the Razzies. We have Razzies on I, the show. I, I, I just I have to mention it just because it, it talks about the quality of the films, but also, yeah, you know, fuck them. Of course. Of but course. Then, then she comes out in this movie, and she's fucking a uh, bulldozer. Yeah. Like, yeah. the way... Th- I have no idea. Like, I know this was not shot on, like, the same day, but, like, how... She's able to keep up and ramp up uh, her how ferocious she is, mm-hmm. um, like like, and it never ever like stops up until she's literally dead. Right. Um, that it, it's it's a it's a stunning stunning thing. Um, amazes me uh, every single time. Thank you, Seamus, for segueing us into the Sharon Stone segment of our episode. We should just have a Sharon Stone segment <laughs> on every episode, even if she's not in the movie. We do need to spend time <laughs> with her. Um, and I'm so glad you mentioned that scene when we first see her. We see Nikki's face, but importantly, as a woman, mm. we also see his wife's face. Ooh. Recognizing what she is looking at when she yeah. sees Sharon Stone. Yep. And this, as a woman, is incredibly important. I want men to know what they're looking at when they look at me. I also want other women to know what they are looking at when they look at me. And I want them to be equally as terrified and amazed and enthralled and intoxicated yeah, as this a is man good. I'm, would I'm be. I'm writing this down. Yes. <laughs> it's very important. Okay. Um, and, and another thing that's really important about that scene is the next words out of Nikki's mouth after he sees her he goes well what have you been doing out here buddy <laughs> but he's like he's like exasperated like he like almost can't believe he's like what have you been doing out he's here like, like he's he like literally is like oh God. what has happened <laughs> I mean I mean if I like Robert De Niro is not like um like I should say I didn't look this up until, until about an hour before this um if you look up the gangster that Rothstein is based off of uh, like, not, not as good looking as De Niro is. <laughs> no, our friend Lefty Rosenthal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like like I got like okay, I got kind of a five head. That man, seven head, seven, seven. eight head. I, I yeah. can't even I can't even believe it. But but you know, even if even if you had a friend who looked exactly like De Niro, if you saw him and then you see that he's with Sharon Stone, it's like, God damn, dude, you you trade it up. Yeah, like she's you, incredible. You, yeah, she's breathtaking. That's, and yeah. and like shout out to our our good friend, friend of the show, Thelma Schumacher, uh, Scorsese's <laughs> longtime editor uh, for yes. you know forty some odd years now going on. Uh, for all the little techniques and tricks she does in this movie, there are so many brilliant little things like that. I was pointing out to to Carly the you know that and, and a handful of times where she uses this kind of dissolve technique that adds this sort of kind of hazy uh mesmeric quality to to the proceedings but it's also a pragmatic decision to stitch together two distinct takes 
of the film uh, without you noticing, you know, and, and it kind of like has this sort of smearing effect. But in, in this shot that you're talking about, this like kind of triple punch in, it's not even like a fast, you know, like yeah. jagged kind of like zoom cut. It's like these sort of elliptical dissolves. It almost feels like somebody being so taken aback that they're blinking rapidly and capturing yeah. somebody in like further, yeah. you know, detail. Um, and it's, it's just perfect. Like that, I, I, know that I kind of like audibly like remarked and exclaimed when I <laughs> saw that's, that's that what shot. They want. Yeah. That's I, the good I should stuff. say, I should say also, I don't know. I, this may be, this may be a slight reach, but I have good reason to believe it. Um, have you seen, have you guys seen, um, uh, personal journey through movies with Martin Scorsese? I have never watched a uh, personal journey through movies. No, I should say, Excellent, excellent. It's I, I when I was um when I was trapped uh, in my apartment in Minnesota uh, during the the COVID winter in 2020. I think I watched that like three times, four times, <laughs> all the way through. Because yeah. he, he's just he's just with you talking at you for like four hours at a time. He's just talking movies he likes, and a big thing that speaks to him is is the silent cinema. And the techniques that people used, yep. and there are that um, kind of blinking triple uh, triple punch in, and also the first shot that we see of Ginger uh, when uh, Nikki is like doing the um, the voiceover monologue. Those two in particular reminded me a lot of how silent films depict like the femme fatale mm -hmm. in 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 uh in in those films like the the main female protagonist but like there's i i again i, I say this phrase a lot i wish i had a better way of articulating it without like the visual medium in front of me but it's a distinct way that entirely relies on the visual medium without any sort of um sound um stinger mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of directors really don't do um and I, I felt it kind of reverberating off of this a little bit um yep. all is that to say sharon stone forces the medium of the film to work to kind of warp around her um, because she's she's uh, fantastic in this um impeccable star uh seals every scene she's in um I uh, I literally cannot conceive of how this film would succeed uh, with someone else in that role. I literally no. cannot fathom. When we first see Sharon Stone in the movie, um, not the moment when Nikki first meets her, but when we first see her in the film, um, I'm so glad you brought up this sort of uh, silent movie era reference. And this is brought to um, an extreme uh, sort of explicit exaggeration in the sense that um, we are seeing her as a as a camera, as, like the the insistence of the camera is really there when mm -hmm. we first notice her, but then it is quite literal in that Sam is watching her through a security camera. Mm. But I loved that. I loved that there was this sort of like literal evocation of of the filmic perspective of of taking her in. Um, and you know, it's incredibly cinematic. It's slow motion. She's laughing. Her hair is being tossed. Importantly, in that scene, um, 
you know, when you all allow me to, I will talk about the clothes. I won't do it right now. We'll have um, Carly's fashion corner at some point <laughs> during the episode. But at some point, for I sure. need to. Um, We're going to talk about dress- Ace's clothes, right? Though, right? I mean, also those; those are incredible. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I have things to say about the entire okay, okay, wardrobe okay, perfect, of this perfect, movie. Perfect. This um, sure. But she's wearing her own dress in that scene. It is a dress that she owned, and it's a vintage piece. Um, and she she brought it out for that for that particular scene, which I think just makes the the kind of confluence of Sharon Stone as uh, an actress and a figure um in hollywood and and this character of ginger and the real no the real life woman jerry mcgee um all the more sort of complicated sharon stone notably the only person recognized by the academy for this film she is nominated for best actress uh she won i think mm, golden globe for she it? did win the golden globe uh, lost this year to Susan Sarandon in Dead Men Walking, uh, a movie that we all still think about every single day and talk about online religiously and uh, remember fondly. Of course, uh, joke, satire, parody. Uh, but I mean, I you know, well, I, I love we, we Susan do Sarandon, talk about we do talk about Susan Sarandon every day. We do. We, I mean, we, we do not and, talk and, about and, Dead we, and we love Susan Sarandon. Of course, you know, like you know, bless her. She's she seems like a wonderful lady. She's, you know. Uh, late into her 70s and still looks, you know, incredible. Uh, but other it. uh, Italian excellence uh, awarded that evening, though, uh, Mira Sorvino, daughter of the great Paul Sorvino for her role in Mighty Aphrodite. Um, but Stone misses it on this one. And I mean, so does every other person involved in this film. There's no screenplay uh, nomination. There's no director nomination. There's no best picture. There's no other performances. The art direction alone in this film, yes, like I, just how busy everything is for production for, design. Uh, costume design at least? No, no. That's crazy. It's nuts. I'm sure they that. gave it to some, you know, you know what I guarantee you they gave it to this year is uh, sense and sensibility. Oh yeah. Cause they yeah. love a good uh, corset. And uh, and they love a period piece. Um, this one is just—I mean, thinking of the legacy of it now, and and just how much richness there is in every single frame of this. It's you know yet another uh, strike against the Academy that this just wasn't recognized even a little bit. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Um, what I really appreciate about this film and the dynamic between Ace and. Uh, ginger in general is that i i think you know, obviously if you're if you're if you're lazy and you're a layman you can see it kind of through like um like a firmly sexist lens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh wherein um uh the 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 beautiful honorable uh sam quote-unquote ace rothstein is wronged by the beautiful but duplicitous uh, ginger something something Um, but it's it's so it's it's partly because of the screen but also partly purely because of Stone's performance she's such a fully realized character Mm -hmm. with very like you can really tell what's animating her, what she's afraid of, what she is running from, and also um, what uh, 
Ace is like not understanding about her. Yes. When it's been clearly outlined to him over and over <laughs> and over again. Yep. Yeah. Um like oh my god. That that really got to me <laughs> this time around. Yeah. Um, it got, yeah. I I oh my god. Um what really gets me this time around was that Ginger tells Sam what she is. Yeah. Like from the word go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um that that marriage proposal scene mm. um is brutal. It's it's, <laughs> it, it's lit, you know, it's lit gorgeously. He's 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 planned it all to a T. And she puts him down like you do like the the school nerd who asks you out. Um it's like yeah. I, I don't have feelings for you that way. <laughs> she like she literally says something like I think you've got the wrong girl. <laughs> I think you got the wrong girl. Like, like she really tries to like play it off, and then and then how? To, and then how does um, Casanova, uh, <laughs> Ace Rossi, play it? I was like, you know, we'll, we'll build on it. Like, you know, this strong base. <laughs> and it's like, you know, do you want to take this chance? It's like, all right, fine. Like, how how are you going to refuse getting like a stability that that this man is offering you, even if you don't feel that way about this person um okay fine he'll be, you know, she'll do it um no no it's so it's so upsetting it is um, yeah <laughs> carly please he um, well he sort of fecklessly you know promises her or perhaps like surmises that she'll grow to love him yeah <laughs> and i was just like this is so this is so painful. Um, notably, the first time the music stops in this movie is when he slows down and we slow down with him and he proposes to her. Yeah. The music is going constantly for the first like 35 minutes of the film. And the, the music goes constantly throughout the whole movie, except for a, a few key parts. Mm-hmm. And the first time that it stops and there is silence is when he proposes to her. Yeah, it's a montage for like almost an hour. And then she comes into the picture and like we've said, like literally stops well, all the proceedings. Well, he gives us a like, montage of her first and then we slow down and he gives her quite literally a proposal. It's like a business plan. It, it's He's a business like, plan. He treats it like a business plan. Absolutely. <laughs> um, But I, I want to go back to something that you said, Seamus, about how fully realized um, the character of Ginger is and there are a couple of key moments where I really felt this movie like surprising what my expectations were even though like I've seen this film but it's like the expectations of being a person who watches movies in America and just like from a western patriarchal perspective where like I expect a certain thing to come out of a woman's mouth in a certain scenario even if it's a movie I'm familiar with um, and a character I'm familiar with there's that scene when they're um, they're married and she's out in the hotel like hallway uh, foyer on one of the phones and she's calling James Woods's character who's this like despicable washed up James. Just, Sorry, I'm, pu- I'm pumping. So uh, if, for those who are listening, I'm pumping my fist because I love James Woods. <laughs> we, um, but like, yes, we love scumbag. James Woods. <laughs> he's come back in real life and in this movie. In, yeah. No, it's perfect casting. Like oh, yeah. just just chef's kiss but she's on the phone with him 
she's crying she's you know talking about how she loves him he's telling her like i'm seeing you the way i first saw you all this like stuff whatever and uh sam de niro's character comes out and he's like you know are you all right like what's going on and rather than lying she tells him like you have to understand like i've been with lester since i was a child like i've known this man my entire life like i i deserve to say goodbye to him um and it was it's this like beautiful moment of subversion where you think like oh you bitch like you're on the phone with some guy on your wedding day and you i mean as a human being you cannot have that response right Mm -hmm. like the way that she is written but also the way that sharon stone acts this character like i was just like i i was heartbroken for her she's talking this terrible disgusting man james woods who i hate in real life um and just his character (laughs) and yet in that moment i was like i i felt for her i was Mm -hmm. like yeah god this is the only person she knows and he did kind of like groom her and she this now she's leaving to be with this man and she doesn't know him or love him really like i got it i got it in that moment and there are so many moments like that where she says things like i've never had to ask for anything in my entire life and now here i am asking you if i can go you know have lunch with someone or you're you know like she doesn't give you an opportunity to like put her in this box of what you think a a character like her would be and what a woman like her would be thanks to movies she really does feel like a real human being which like you know is a a bare minimum thing for uh having a woman in a film but i think it's really easy and a lot of a lot of women frustratingly make this argument online particularly about uh, directors like Scorsese will where they will say things like oh the violence against women is like so misogynistic and so it just like normalizes but that 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 and I'm fr- like no what you're saying is actually anti-woman what you are saying is actually missing the point of seeing the ways in which this female character is portrayed beyond the violence that is acted against her Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like I feel like I need to put up a defense here. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about strong women characters. What about strong male characters? <laughs> we, there are we, none in this movie. Sorry. No, no, uh, no. Hold on, hold on. I'm gonna. I'm gonna <laughs> I, 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 I will say um, just as like what I also appreciate. Not, not that Scorsese was ever gonna deny us this, but I also appreciate that Ace Rothstein is also such like a complex and fully realized yes. character in the way that he is. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's such a, the whole intro of the film is establishing himself as this kind of perfectionist. Yep. And with, he tries to figure out the dynamic to everything, including the relationship dynamics of the players that he bets on. But when he is faced with something intangible, like love, like the idea of being somebody. Um, he just completely falters in the face of that. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't know how to act. He is constantly trying to like save himself from total failure um, when it's staring him right in the face. Um, 
to a certain degree, and I say this with the biggest qualification in the entire world <laughs> before I say it, um, there is a part of Sam that reminds me of how I was like when I was younger, mm-hmm. when I was a little bit younger. Like the idea of like, it's a, it's, it's a deeply naive thing, but more importantly, it's a deeply narcissistic thing. Yep. To believe that you meet a woman and they have a problem that they're dealing with or an issue that they're dealing with, but that you personally, um, through your your joie de vivre or whatever, <laughs> that uh, you can change them for the better. Right. Um, and it's a it's a it's a stupid thing. It's a malignant thing. And it's good to get that out of your system early because um, if you don't and you let that thing fester within you, uh, then you become like De Niro in this movie um, in which, I mean, the amount of things that he throws at Sharon Stone. Oh, God. Yeah. The amount of times he drags her around oh places or pushes her into stuff or out of things like... Yeah, Ugh. and at, like the biggest evidence of at, like the the worst possible evidence of how one how narcissistic he is, but also how much of a coward he is. And and Sharon Stone's character comments on this. He confronts Lester in that diner when Ginger is stealing uh, that twenty five thousand mm-hmm. to give to him, and does uh, Ace do the traditional manly thing of going mano a mano with this fucking guy? No. He sends out some other pricks to beat him up in front of Ginger. Yep. And to hold her back from doing anything about it. Yeah. Like he's such he he's such, he's such a pissant. He's such like, a pissant. He he, and- he's oh my God. He's 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 completely contemptible um and pathetic. And yeah. like the the worst part is, is that like you can see, you see the little Genesis point that is like in so many different people and then it just grows and grows and grows. And it, it when you're, when you have all of that, all of those resources and money and power at your disposal, then it becomes just a horrifying thing that destroys uh, not only one life, but like uh, Nikki and yeah. uh, everyone around him. Uh, again, because I, I love that De Niro is so fucking stupid in this movie. It's, it's, uh, it's very <laughs> it's very refreshing. No, it's one of my favorite things about the character. Like, and I'm glad you bring up that that kind of like parking lot scene with James Woods. It it, it to me is uh, a compelling inverse of the scene in Goodfellas where Henry beats the shit out of the neighbor for her, you know, like where he like goes across the street after she like, gets kind of roughed up by like the, the neighbor guy who like kind of has eyes for her. And he like smashes his face in with the, the butt of a gun and then like gives it to her like bloody and is like, go hide this. And she's like, I should have been freaked out, but I was super turned on by it because like, this guy like defended my honor and like beat the shit out of someone who wronged me, you know, like that power. And it's the exact opposite of that where it's like, let me show you how powerful I am in quotes. And it's like, 
I'm going to have some guys beat up your ex-boyfriend for me, uh, which is like completely undermining of like his entire self-perception and idea of himself. After having her followed. After having her followed. Like the the surreptitious nature of of his way that he relates to her. Right. Is uh is disturbing and it doesn't matter if she warrants it or not. It's like it's that thing that Seamus is talking about where like you can't like fucking like abacus a relationship buddy like you can't like <laughs> you can't right. do like a chalkboard table and like figure out the odds right. on whatever you like can't, you once can't you're already doing that the relationship is over <laughs> it's no, over it's like like you <laughs> you gotta be able to just feel shit out but absolutely that that's his that's it that's the only yeah that's the only way that he can visualize something that is again intangible and yeah. it it leads him into uh, becoming this absolute freak who, even if Ginger is absolutely a toxic individual who uh, ties up her own daughter so oh that she can God. go smoke. <laughs> it was just for an hour or two. She was asleep <laughs> she anyway. She was also like on opiates and God knows what else. <laughs> you know, like. No, no, no. Like, look, girl boss, uh, she works. <laughs> Right. We love her. We stand. Mom, however, tying up your kids to a bed. Mom, she's exactly. momming. She's exactly. momming. I, I, I got to say, though, like, you know, and I don't know if you guys have this happen, but like when you watch a bunch of different movies that seemingly have no like connective tissue to them whatsoever, and they all sort of start to like thematically cohere or like you find sort of like similarities between all of them. Uh, I, I watched Hitchcock's uh, Marnie for the first time very recently, and that too is a film that is all about like the self deception of a man trying to like fix a woman and like make her better through his own logic and know how. And he also is like really into zoology and tries to f- figure her out that way. It's 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 a great movie. Please watch it. But that alongside uh, another film that I just watched, uh, I went and saw David Fincher's new movie, The Killer, uh, which is getting like mixed reviews right now but i personally think it's one of his best films uh the more i think about it, the more i love it and what i love so much about it is that same semblance of self-deception specifically communicated as like this dissonance between the narrative and like the voiceover and how he's behaving and you see that in the michael fassbender character in that film and i was thinking about it as i was watching this where every action we see ace commit to like everything he does is completely at odds with like his his personal ethos and his own like idea of himself and like everything he wants to believe about how like righteous he is how intelligent he is how much he brings like a sort of like smoothness and like even temper to everything like even as he's just like simmering you know he like he never really explodes very much in the movie uh he's being a complete fucking asshole like he's like like you're you're making terrible decisions right now clouded by your own narcissism oh and also like the 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 best example we were talking about is right the first lines at the beginning of the film um like he talks about um how you've got to have i'm paraphrasing gotta have complete trust oh my god the only way that it's gonna work (laughs) right for a while that's the love that I thought I had. And then, of course, it explodes and you get the beautiful orchestral music. But, yeah, he talks about how, like, you've got to trust 
in a relationship that never happens like <laughs> never once. never once does he trust in this woman to do anything and he stupidly believes that this dynamic was even present for <laughs> for any amount of time <laughs> for years and then he's still like if 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 we view it as kind of like a circle thing where he's, where he's talking about the this viewpoint at the end like he still, to a certain degree, hasn't learned anything by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? It's like the final line, like, that's the way it is. Yep. And that's like, that. That's that. It, it's, it, I'm expanding far outward metatextually, but it's, I, it was reminded me of, um, uh, I think uh, the director, uh, I think his name is Errol Morris, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that might be his name, uh, did a dur- documentary about Donald Rumsfeld. The uh, um, the unknown known, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, in that, Donald Rumsfeld talks about like what the pullout from Vietnam was like, and Morris implores him to uh, ask, like, what did you learn from the biggest strategic failure uh, in modern American military history up until that point? And um, what does Rumsfeld say? You know, some things work out, some things don't. That didn't. It's very, (laughs) very pithy, very compact, very concise um, viewpoint that to a layman, i.e. moron, might indicate some sort of like, I don't know, uh, ancient sort of simple knowledge. Some sort of wisdom, Um, right? Yeah, Wisdom, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simple wisdom, Confucian wisdom, whereas it really just indicates that either you're being willfully dense uh, or you're just actually stupid, and neither are are good for you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I again, I, I, re- I reiterate. I appreciate how willing this movie is to show you without explicitly telling you that Ace Rothstein is just the biggest dunce. Um, it's it's a good <laughs> thing. It's a good thing for the movie. Was way up. The gods were happy, or as happy as the gods can ever be. And I, I decided to complicate my life. For a guy who likes sure things, I was about to bet the rest of my life on a real long shot. We're not getting any younger. Don't you think it's time? Aren't you getting tired of all this shit? Banging around, hustling around. What are you trying to handicap me? I'm gonna do you one better. I'm trying to marry you. You wanna marry me? I'm serious. I want to settle down. I want a family. You got the wrong girl, Sam. I know I'd be a good father. I know you'd be a good mother. You don't know me. What do you know me two, three months? What do you know? I'm 43 years old. I don't want to wait. I know you well enough to know that I really love you very much. And I can't think of anybody better to be with. And I don't feel like waiting anymore. You know a lot of happily married people, Sam, because I don't. I know all that. I care about you. But I just don't have those kind of feelings for you. I'm sorry. I'm not in love with you. I can grow, you 
as long as there's a mutual respect, that kind of thing can grow. I'm realistic. I can accept that. But you know, what is what is love anyway? It's a, it's a mutual respect, it's a, it's a devotion, it's a, it's a caring from one person to another. And if we could set up some kind of foundation based on that mutual respect, I feel that eventually you would care enough about me that I could live with that. You know, if it doesn't play out, then what happens to me? You know, I'm doing well now, and I'm going to do even better. And so whatever happens, if it doesn't work out between us, I'm going to make sure you're okay for the rest of your life. And if there are kids, especially, you know, I'll take care of you better than you'd ever what imagine. What are you pitching me? Just what I said. You'll be set up for the rest of your life. That I can promise you. We should talk about Pesci, too, in this movie. Oh, of course. You know, uh, talking about, you know, like, lovable dunces. <laughs> he's he's a different <laughs> kind of kind of character, you know? Like, he... Uh, I, I mean, it's it's very... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say similar, because it is similar to Tommy DeVito, you know, his Academy Award-winning performance in Goodfellas, but it's a different kind of sort of uh, relentless, psychopathic kind of character that he plays in this. And it's like... Uh, I don't know. It's it's not driven by like some sort of like uh, discordant or like you know chaotic rage so much as it is like this sort of overwhelming a- ambition in quotes. You know, like it, I think at one point Ace even says like, oh, you know, like Nikki had these ideas of like taking things over. It, his problem is that he doesn't have any sense of decorum or or any you know uh, ability to to plan or have any sort of foresight it's just like well what if i just go and kill everybody like if there's nobody left like i'm the guy in charge right i can't even think of like a single like series of positive interactions uh nikki has with like anybody no uh, in (laughs) this movie he has like maybe a singular positive interaction with the metro cop of the little league yeah, <laughs> but every single time he talks with um, Ace, he says something positive, but then like there's this tinge of like there's a like of um, like like I think about the conversation where they're talking about like what do you think about me moving out here? Like mm-hmm. he's asking, but you can tell from his voice that like he's not really asking. Um, and then he gets kind of offended when uh, you know Ace implies that there might be any difficulty to the plans that he's making you know right from the word go he's not accepting no for an answer in any way shape or form um (laughs) and of course it just gets exponentially worse from there um i can't like stupidly like not even stupidly just like the way the film is situated like he gets banned from the casinos uh very early yeah. In the movie. <laughs> yeah, like at the midpoint you, of the movie, it's like he did so much crime that he wasn't allowed to step foot anywhere in Vegas anymore. He's like it's at like, a fucking okay. gas station or something. It, it has that hilarious scene where like Ace is explaining to him like the logistics of what's happened and how he's been banned. And he's like, Well, what if I like step foot in a restaurant because I want one of those sandwiches that I like so much and it's in the casino? Like it's just like coincidentally in the like incidentally. And he's like no, you're not allowed in the casino, Nikki. Like you can't, you can't go in. <laughs> like uh, an amazing showcase throughout this entire film of uh, of men not getting it. 
Um, uh, like, oh, <laughs> then you as a viewer are wondering, okay, there's like two hours left in the movie. How is this going to go? And yeah, he just goes from there um, through successively shittier locales in order to do crime in where he's more and more disconnected from like the the daily life of Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just robbing people. Um, he can't, doesn't he like, he <laughs> yeah. can't stand to look at people, the people who he's robbing. So he just turns them, he puts the, the pictures down. Pictures down. <laughs> he has a gang of like, <laughs> of, of racist thugs who follow him around. Uh, of, uh, uh, the primary one being Frank Vincent, the, the indomitable uh, Frank Vincent. Yep. Uh, who we shouldn't ignore. Who um, this is something only I noticed, and I don't think was intentional. But I like the fact that he goes to that jewelry store, which is staffed by Iranians, uh, and he and he calls them uh, uh, fucking Arabs. I appreciated that, like that. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, God, I. It, it's also a testament to Sir Chrisacy's ability that, like, Nikki is by far the worst character in the film by virtue of how many crimes he does that are just Mm -hmm. absolutely unfathomable. Um, But also his murder is so horribly upsetting. Horrific. It might be the most brutal scene of violence in any Scorsese picture. Like I'm having trouble thinking of another one. And I didn't, uh, you know, I, I was, I didn't remark on this to you, you know, when we watched it, but I went back and watched it again they use like a uh, an animatronic in that scene. Yeah. yeah. Like like it's it's to uh, bury to to bury him and cover him in dirt and he's yep. bloody and something about like the uncanniness of it also makes it feel that much more violent where it's almost like this like husk of a human being like almost unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. He's moving in kind of odd contorting ways. Uh oh, it's it's so so brutal. It's kind of like opening like gaping like a fish that's like yeah. on like yeah. belly up on a on a shore or something. It, it looks like something from the thing, you know, before yeah. like, you know, his head gets ripped off and grows spider legs and starts crawling around or something. But it, you know, it has that same sort of uncanny, like horrific, you know, tactile quality to it. But you're right, Seamus. It is like pretty remarkable how moved we are by that death, considering three hours of Nikki just being a fucking sociopath. If he had been shot in a normal way, like um like in the like in the way of Goodfellas where he gets just shot in the back of the head. Yep. Like there's some weight to that, but it's not emotional, right. I think, in any way, other than to De Niro's character in, in Goodfellas. But here uh, he's literally forced to watch his little brother uh get beaten to death beforehand. Yep. And he's just weeping and he's crying and he's calling out for him and I thought about, again, Parallels of the Irishman. Um, there isn't something nearly of that caliber, but I thought in particular about the scene uh, where Hoffa gets assassinated by Frank. Mm-hmm. And there's that little moment where Pacino's character, Hoffa, sees the empty house and he goes to leave and he says, you know, let's get out of here, Frankie. He trusts Frankie enough to 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 not suspect him. Mm-hmm. And he, he and he gets shot first and he almost gives out this sound of like shock 
and and horror and surprise before he's plugged uh, that second time. And it's so it's it's brief, but it's really jarring and mm-hmm. and saddening. And even though Hoffa has been just just a, a prick that whole movie, uh, outside of being a hero of the working class. We respect, we respect with, with, with full, with full hearts. Um, I mean, this criticism has been kind of passe for a while now. It used to be, I think more common that Scorsese, um, idolizes and valorizes the, the people, the subjects of his films. Yeah. Um, but especially here and in the Irishman and, and in others that are more evocative of his late style, like not only are their lives meaningless, unhappy, uh, filled with stress, they're never able to enjoy anything. Um, they also die horribly or are almost killed horribly. Um, like the only reason, which I, I didn't even know this is the real life reason why he didn't die. Uh, the character is based on the only reason he doesn't die from that car bomb is that you know it's a total fluke because otherwise he would have just he would have just been blown up in his his fucking car yeah <laughs> like that's 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 a bad way to go out yeah I uh, I watched on that uh, casino 4K on the on the Blu-ray there's some special features uh, one of them is a History Channel documentary like an hour length documentary with uh, Nicholas Pileggi, who wrote the book, who also, you know, wrote Goodfellas. So, you know, multiple collaborations with Scorsese. But he's talking about, you know, the kind of dumb luck of Lefty Rosenthal, a.k.a. Ace Rothstein, and the fact that there's this steel plate underneath him in the, the current model of the vehicle that he's in. And he says something kind of just like offhandedly where he's like, I'd never talked to anybody who had been car bombed before because every single person who's ever been car bombed before him is dead. Like this is, this just doesn't happen. Like, you know, however, uh, haphazard it is like you, they, they die. Even if it is as, as, uh, Ace says, you know, uh, amateur hours or whatever. I think it's really interesting that lefty, the real life person that Ace is based on and Ace in the film spent his life, you know, sort of like orchestrating, his wins right like abacusing his life right like he's Mm. like he would do all these research on on the players and he would he had tipsters all over town and he's the perfectionist as as you said and it was never ever luck it was always him being really intentional and like scrupulous about um the way that he placed his bets and uh the sort of two biggest things in his life are things that he did not ultimately have control over at all one is him not dying in a car bomb that had he would have right like he did not orchestrate that he made it out alive it was pure luck um antithetical to what he's built his entire career on which Mm -hmm. is the opposite of luck um and ginger um who he says in the beginning um and i i think said this in real life because Pelleggi sort of alludes to it um in the interview for the history channel that like he 
always bet on sure things, finger quotes, right? And with with Ginger, aka Jerry, he was betting on a long shot. And, you know, just the fact that he's sort of like, we see the ways in which he treats her like a bet. He has tipsters telling him what's going on with her. Yep. He's like, you know, doing his research. He's, uh, he's you know, trying to orchestrate the entire relationship and he, he can't. And I just, I think that's like a, you know, you can't write that. The, like, his life wrote that, wrote, wrote it itself. And I think it's... Um, it's kind of beautiful and scary. And on the point that you made about um, about Nikki's death, I think what makes it potent beyond the sort of like visuals of that scene, which are just gutting, um, the narration that leads up to it is like incredibly painful. Um, Robert De Niro's character is narrating and then uh, Joe Pesci's character is narrating, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, sort of rhythm of the entire film, except for when Phil Leotardo, which is what I'm going to call him, uh, breaks in <laughs> for a quick moment and narrates uh, one short piece of the film. But yeah. it it oscillates back and forth between Nikki and Sam the entire film. And right before Nikki, uh, Nikki and his brother die, Uh, Robert De Niro's character is narrating that like the bosses had decided he had gotten out of hand and and they knew what they were going to do with him. And right after that, Nikki comes in and says, so I orchestrated this meeting out in the cornfields for us to do. And he's like saying like that he did all this shit because, you know, he was he had some master plan and he was going to like put some things together and it's just like so sad and pathetic because like he's here he is narrating his own death and talking about how like he had planned that all these things were going to happen and he set up this meeting and then he gets you know fucking beaten to death and watches his watches his brother get beaten to death and it's i mean the narration is like you know it's a it's 30 seconds long between the two of them, but it really makes the potency of that scene that much stronger Mm -hmm. Um, and, and even more tragic. The narration that go like, I I think I'm reiterating what, what Aaron had said earlier, but just like the ways that the narration that shows like the character's interior monologue is how they're viewing the situation and how desperately it does not match what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, darkly comedic uh, in some ways, uh, kind of horribly uh, ups- upsetting uh, at others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. All, I, I should say, as, as kind of a larger, larger thing, the script in this, much like almost all of uh, Scorsese's work, um, brilliant, masterful, Mm-hmm. Um, every yeah. character great speaks amazingly. Um, no, no complaints. Uh, I think, I, I, I think on that front, at least for me, I love the way that Nikki and Sam have these conversations, both sort of metatextually in the narrative, uh, and, uh, within the diegesis of the film where they're totally talking past each other mm-hmm. like they are not at all having the same conversation at any point um and they are people that have known each other since childhood and this is um 
brought up in incredibly uh almost comedically at the end when ginger is pleading with nikki to kill sam and save her and he turns on her and he says i'm gonna whack a guy i've known 35 years for for some fucking broad like you gotta be kidding me lady and look um, look i i I just want to if i if i can just briefly briefly say this if sharon stone asked me to kill anyone like that person's I, I, dead. That person's I, gone. Yeah. So yeah like, sorry. I'm murdering whoever she wants. I don't know um, what Pesci's talking about, but okay, please go <laughs> on. But it's delusional, right? Like there's this kind of illusory sense of of friendship and connection and and loyalty between them that we know isn't there in real life, yeah. right? Like it doesn't exist. It's not material or tangible in any way and you know it's evoked in these times when it needs to be quite cynically on the part of of the characters themselves but but in their dialogue i mean they are never talking to each other Mm -hmm. not once and like every time they're in separate places talking to the mobsters or the you know the the managers or anybody else of power and influence like especially ace is like can can we get Nikki the fuck out of here? Like I don't I don't want anything to do with this guy anymore. Like he just like he like legitimately can't stand him He's for like most of the movie. His name is always in the paper next to mine. Yeah, and it's I'm always a bad getting, look. I'm always getting asked about like if I know this guy. I, I mean, it's very very funny. I I, I want to bring up two specific scenes as they pertain to sort of like the psychology of both of these men because I think that they're both like incredibly funny and very remarkable in their own right. Like they're great scripted moments. And I think one of the things we're, we're talking about, you know, with the writing uh, many of the, the voiceovers uh, as far as I can deduce are almost verbatim quotes that Pelleggi got from, uh, mm. from lefty Rosenthal or from Tony Spilatro, the guy who Nikki is based on. Um, which I, I find fascinating. But there are a couple of contrivances in the movie itself that I think are really, really special. One of them is the scene where De Niro is at like a, a sit down, like a coffee and pastries with Kevin Pollock's character. And we know him to be this, you know, very logistically minded guy trying to orchestrate everything, trying to have a handle of control and, you know, sort of apply this sense of stability and and predictability onto a deeply corrupt system you know this this foolhardy kind of enterprise all the way down to the minutia of a blueberry muffin oh, right <laughs> and uh they're eating and and he's not even really listening to what Pollock has to say anymore and he looks and he's like look at look at my fucking muffin compared to your muffin Look how many blueberries you've got in your muffin and look at my, I have no blueberries. And so he goes back to the, the chef at this, you know, in the kitchen is like, from now on, you put the same amount of blueberries in every muffin. And the guy's like, you realize how like that, that's how much time that takes, how like deeply, like that's completely, you know, anti-pragmatic and, you know, fully like that, that takes forever. It doesn't make sense. And he's like, I don't care the same amount of blueberries in every muffin. And I just think it's, I mean, one, it's again, you know, like just darkly comedic, like so much of the movie is, and also just like shows the level of this guy's narcissism and mania in that moment. 
He sucks so much. <laughs> I, 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 I saw that scene. I just, I, had, I, I had to remember that from the first one. It's like he can't, he can't stop himself from wanting control over every single situation that he possibly can. Um, it, it's a. It, it's that codependent mindset, and I, I don't want to do armchair psychology too much, but it's that codependent mindset kind of extrapolated into every single facet of his relationship to the world. Like, one, he thinks he can change everything through his own persona. Um, and additionally, uh, he whereas he can't do that, then he has to forcefully through like change everything around it in order mm-hmm. to, to get to that, that goal. And, and at no point does he see the contradiction between these two. Mm-hmm. Um, like in particular, I think about like, um, <laughs> Ace is high. Uh, the, the late night program that he does for like 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I don't, which is, I don't know how intentional this was just because I think I saw um, parts of Joker and he seems to give like the same <laughs> shtick in that yeah. too. I think he just might not be good at this like particular role, but the way that Ace, who is not, who is a pretty stoic guy, um, has now tasked himself with being a, a late night variety host. Yeah. Purely because he has, he's tr- can't, stop himself um and he's doing shtick and he's doing jokes and he's juggling and he's he's so bad at it (laughs) It, it's such a bad show um but again he feels like he needs if he doesn't have control over the situation that he finds himself in uh he will literally die yeah, mm-hmm. like that. Is, that is the the constant like buzz that is hanging over his head at all times. Um, entirely an unforced error. Um, he didn't have to do any of this, and um, if he had just like kept his head down and not fucked with so many people and associated with Nikki so much, he would have still been running the Tangiers. Like none of this. None of this would have happened. Yeah, um, but it it's it's the same with him firing the like brother-in-law right. of the gaming commission guy, right? Where it's like the the you know old guy in the cowboy hat and the snakeskin boots and the the you know bolo comes in and is like, you should really hire hire this guy back. I know he's kind of worthless, but uh, it would be good for your business for you to do this, and all he has to do is say like, okay, like the guy even gives him an out. He's like, is there something less involved that he could do? Is there, so, is there something further down the trough? Down, down the trough. There, 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 exactly. Where, where, where he, and he's, and yeah, he gets, it's the perfect out. Just give him a fucking do nothing job where he doesn't have to oversee anything. Yeah. And why is it a point of honor for you to like, not let this fucking guy in? I don't, I don't understand. Like, I, well, yeah. it's, it's his it's his need for control. To your point, and it's his it's his fastidiousness. Mm-hmm. He says, like, I don't trust him. Right, this this idea of trust, uh, you know, evoked when it's it's uh, convenient for right. him. Like, 
He's like, I don't trust him. There are too many things that he could screw up. I can't, I just can't have him inside these hotel walls, basically. <laughs> and it's like, dog, like you're, you know, you're running with criminals from all over the country. You're, you're, you know, you've got a count room that's like totally fucked. Like you can let <laughs> this guy be like a fucking cater waiter or whatever, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. You've, you've literally got, got guys in the count room, like skimming off of the skim right now, like talking about trust and like whether or not this guy's going to fuck up your enterprise. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's just, it, it is, it's, it, he's stuck in his ways. Uh, the, the other moment I wanted to bring up has to do with Nikki and is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. It's the one where he is like drunk and probably also like totally gacked up and like, you know, coked out of his mind and goes down to the blackjack table and Ace gets the call that he's like 10 grand in the hole and like keeps losing. And he's just like <laughs> viciously verbally assaulting the dealers and like throwing cards in these guys' faces and causing the a scene. What the fuck are you smiling? What do you fuck you grinning at? How the fuck can you grin? How the fuck can you grin? You know how much I'm stuck? You give a fuck? Do you? Yeah, give yourself a hand right across your fucking mouth. Look at this fucking butte they put in now. Sherbert sent you in here to rob me now? Been fucking knocking everybody's dick in all night? Huh? You've been beating all the customers tonight, motherfucker? Huh? Jag off. Hit me. Take this stiff and pound it up your fucking ass. Hit me again. Take this one and stick it up your sister's ass. Hit me again. That's it. Keep looking at him, you fucking dummy. If you had any fucking heart at all, you'd be out fucking stealing for a living. Hit me again. What the fuck you keep looking at him for? Man, you fucking... Look at this. 20 fucking paints in a row. Hit me again. You should pay as fast as you collect, you know? You're grinning? How can you, how can you grin? How can you grin right <laughs> how now? How can you grin? <laughs> uh, uh, he also, you know, he calls that guy a butte, that like just like lifeless, like kind of like faceless shape of a man who apparently is a real Vegas dealer. Uh, you can tell you can tell the dealers in this movie are Vegas dealers. Yeah, Scorsese said he didn't have to give him any direction. He's like, just... Treat him the way you treat anybody who did this in your casino, <laughs> and he did. He he did. He did nothing but what he would do otherwise, and it's it's pitch perfect. And again, you know, like Pesci in this moment, you know, for all of his own personal ethos or his self perceptions, like he's just another fucking mark at the table at this point in the movie. Mm. No, that's, that's that's nice. That's good. That's metaf- That's, that's a good mm. metaphor. He <laughs> no. he beats up Don Rickles. Like, yeah, which is not okay. unconscionable. Not okay. Unconscionable. Unconscionable. Also, a uh, 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 genius bit of casting for Rickles, by the way. Like this immediately recognizable face. This you know comic giant, and is just stone faced the entire movie. Just like you know, like he does he just, one like, bit he, of shtick. He he, he does one does. Uh, when when he's when he's doing the I don't know what's going on I better better down here than up there you know like like that like <laughs> yeah. that thing that's one and, thing where he get where he gets to see Rickles in action but yeah he gets to be Rickles and there's like one just cut away to his face of like horror 
when uh Sharon Stone shows up in like the last scene when he brings over the shotgun mm-hmm. for for De Niro but but beyond that like he's just he's just a, a presence there you know who we like recognize but also is supposed to kind of be this stern right hand to to ace but he's like in real life don rickles did populate this world of like late 60s early 70s vegas right he was on um uh dean martin's just like wonderfully bacchanal uh celebrity roasts (laughs) that he used to do yeah um and Don Rickles was like a, a a regular character on there and and had a stint in Vegas. And we also see, you know, the figures of Siegfried and Roy evoked, like quite literally. Um, and Frankie Avalon, who was like a big fixture. Like, I really loved that there are all of these like real life threads of old Vegas in the movie. Um, sometimes just as little sort of like flourishes or details, um, right down to the costuming, which we will talk about at a certain point. But mm-hmm. Don Rickles being in this movie, I think, is is one of my favorite um, bits of it because he, he was in this world. He takes the time to make it an actually living, breathing thing, but also Scorsese sees no like real love emanating from it which right. which i th- which i think is key um though as a, as a we'll, we'll we'll segue into what i think we all want to talk about um what i do love and is unimpeachable uh, are the outfits in this film um which stand the test of time yeah uh ace rothstein suits in particular um I want at least two of them mm-hmm. or three of oh, yeah. them. Oh yeah. Um all of them if I can if I could if I was able. Um they are they 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 break all of seemingly all of the rules of what like suit fashion should be. Yep. And yet they're all amazing. They're immaculate. Uh, it, it it's startling. I mean the very first the very first suit that we see from him, uh, he's got the um, like the hot pink dress shirt, and then like the bright tuna fish mm-hmm. uh, colored uh, suit jacket, and then the um, uh, the off white uh, uh, trousers, uh, and also the the the, the pink tie. Yeah. Um, my God. My God, every every outfit. Um, it, it is, it's very weird to talk about this without like the visual reference, but like, I mean, all of them, all of them iconic. You, you paint an expressive picture though, Seamus. And Thank you. I mean, we'll talk about De Niro because I want you to talk about Stone, obviously, Carly, but like De Niro's suits, like you said, like almost break convention where the shirt and the tie are almost always like identical colors. And then even like the suiting itself is like, so close like on the color wheel to like the shirt that he's wearing that it's like this shouldn't work and yet everything just looks incredible like jazzed up to the nines yeah i mean like i I, could i pull this off probably not but i would like to try i would like to be given the opportunity you you should you should respect yourself aaron like you you need to you need to i there's a part of me that like i envision myself uh, wearing like uh, that bright teal 
mm-hmm. suit that he wears like in the uh, the meeting with uh, the county commissioner guy. Yep. Uh, where he, where he <laughs> he's not wearing pants. For puts, the, he puts them on. I don't on know why that's he, there. Because that's um, what the maestro does. <laughs> the oh, of course. It's the Seinfeld bit. <laughs> All all men who are uh, who are intent on having a a literal and and metaphorical unrumpled appearance mm-hmm. hang their pants when before they, they have a, a good meeting, so that when they stand up to greet their their you know whoever they happen to be meeting with, they don't have creases in their pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I'm I'm I'm, I'm learning uh more and more about this okay that makes more sense however in 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 my vision i imagine <laughs> i imagine i have the pants on and i'm yes. walking into like um like a lecture of some sort uh and you know people people are, are looking at it like what 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 the hell is he doing what is, what is this outfit <laughs> but then they realize oh he's making a statement and the statement, the same, the, like like that alone, I think could propel me through any misgivings anyone has about the suit. Listen, um, you two, yeah. both of you should be dressing like Ace Rothstein. Fair enough. So, like, what's stopping you? I, I just feel like <laughs> if I gave it a shot and I tried to do this, I would just end up looking like Nathan J. Robinson instead. <laughs> <by mistake>. like, <laughs> okay, that's actually that's actually fair. Not not everyone can. <sighs> Or Jordan Peterson in that terrible. Or Jordan Peterson, yeah, exactly. And like you know, uh, you know, Robinson's on the left, I suppose. Like no, no smoke to you know somebody's sartorial inclinations who generally has you know fairly decent political positions. I mean, he is Uh, anti-union. I was going to say even even if he is a union buster, uh, this one's a paywalled episode anyway, so we can probably keep it in and and no one will care. Uh, But. Yeah, I, I I just feel like I would look goofy in it, but I would try again. I would try. I'd smash certain bones in my face with a ball peen hammer, like they do on TikToks. <laughs> that I get the structure of De Niro's face more closely. Um, that I mean, that's the biggest thing. Is like I just I don't look like Robert De Niro. Ugh, he's fucking gorgeous. I mean, as, as much of a you know foot as as a Rothstein is in this movie, like. You're still looking at Robert De Niro and you're still looking at like late middle age Robert De Niro, which is like, oh, he's so hot. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) And he carries these suits off beautifully. Like, he wears them. If you think about the other movies that Robert De Niro is in and the types of characters that he's playing, Heat coming out the same year, a very, very different tenor of wardrobe and like, you know, manner of expressing yourself. And he still feels like remarkably at home in, in this wardrobe. I think it's, um, I think it's really important to note that, uh, the costume designers, um, are two people named Rita Ryak and John A. Dunn. And they were working with a million dollar budget on this movie for wow. costumes. Good for them. All right. Partially because of the archival pieces they were pulling for Sharon Stone's wardrobe, which I will get into in a second with great pleasure. <laughs> um, but they, you know, in an interview I was reading with the two of them, they noted that they were looking at photos of Lefty, the real life person that De Niro is playing, and they were like, 
watching his trajectory from starting in the Midwest in Chicago and then out uh, moving out west to Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And they talked about the way that his wardrobe shifted over the arc of his his life and his career and very literally mapped this move of his. And they said that they noticed in these photos of him when he was dressing the way that he was in Vegas that like he felt like they could tell that it was like him sort of like coming into his own and that um you know these were outfits that like gangsters and made men uh and connected to made men um people would have never worn in like Chicago or Kansas right they would have been like a snakeskin jacket or leather or some, you know, dark wool coat or whatever. And then suddenly, you know, this figure of lefty is out in Vegas and he's bringing a lot of uh, mob ties with him and gangsters started dressing like him. Like they started wearing these ostentatious colors and, um, and looking like, you know, Neko, Neko wafers, uh, <laughs> in, in casinos. And, um, and so they were really, really careful about the care and attention they put into his wardrobe in particular because of what it does to communicate his transformation and sort of like his, the thing you've been talking about this entire time, Seamus, which is like kind of his hubris, right? That he believes himself to be this, this man of importance and for a certain time he is but that it it really is evoked in his costuming um and in the way that he carries himself in these suits and i just i love the way robert de niro looks in like a sherbet color mm-hmm. it's just like gorgeous on him yeah he looks great he looks great though not as good as as sharon stone not as say. good as Sharon Stone. I mean, it's okay. hard for anybody on the planet to look as good as she does in some of the dresses that she's in in so this movie. So, like, I think that we just need to take a minute. Um, and by a minute, I mean a couple. Yeah. Um, it's, it is crucial in this movie that she is actually wearing, like, archival pieces in many of the scenes. She's wearing archival Poochie. Um, the the outfit that she dies in is vintage Poochie and Poochie is known for his sort of like psychedelic swirls and all of these like beautiful colors. And, um, and, uh, and that piece was archival Poochie. Uh, We noted in the beginning of her, um, her time in the film, she's actually wearing her own vintage piece. Um, and then there is this other dress that causes much ado whenever it is on screen and did when this film came out, which is the gold um, mesh bobbled bedazzled Bob Mackie dress that she is wearing when they're having a party at their home. Yep. Um, Ooh, let, me, and let me look this up while you, while you say that. You must. Need to make sure. It's Bob out of Mackie. control. Um, so Bob Mackie did actually outfit many many famous women um in in and around vegas Um, okay i see what you mean yeah and on a lot of variety shows like Mm -hmm. him and Cher have a very long relationship um he famously dressed um tina turner for a lot of her shows like Mm. this man is known for this kind of like glitz and glamour um that found its home in vegas but really did sort of live in Hollywood for celebrities, for women 
and uh, and people of wealth at the time. Um, and so she's Sharon Stone is in this Bob Mackie dress and she in an interview talks about like what a fucking nightmare it was to wear <laughs> and like just how heavy it was and how uncomfortable it was and it's mesh but it's also covered in gold and and jewels and so it is at once like this thing that she talks about suffocating her and she's also like there was like wind blowing through my ass. Like, I, you know, like it's, she's like, it's a very strange experience wearing this dress, but she's like, you know, you're in this scene and you're doing like this incredible, this incredible work. Like you don't complain about the dress. You put it on and like you, you go about your business. This scene though, Seamus is one that um I thought of when you talked about the way that they shoot and light Sharon Stone in this movie. There's a there are a couple points in this film when you can actually see a kind of like reverse Morticia Adams lighting on her. Hmm. Um, very famously, Angelica Houston was lit uh, sort of eyes like old Hollywood eyes, right where they light the the sort of like um, band across the top of your head and keep the rest of your face in shadow, like a noirish chiaroscuro. Yep, and Sharon Stone's character is shot. Uh, in the reverse of that so her eyes are often shadowed in a band and she has this beautiful gleam of light uh, on the lower half of her face Hmm. and she's shot this way in one of these scenes when she's in this bob mackie dress and you can see the reflection of the dress sort of sparkling on her chin and it's just breathtaking it's like absolutely stunning and I can't think of anyone else who could carry off some of the outfits in this movie. The only other thing I'll say, because I could say a lot more, is when they couldn't get archival um, pieces, they actually recreated them or recreated mm. something like them. Another famous outfit in um, the movie, uh, an out- famous outfits for both of them, is when Sam and Ginger are stepping off of a private jet and they're walking onto a tarmac and he's in this like yellow, like butter yellow suit. And she is in this um, kind of sky baby blue patent leather um, two piece jacket and skirt set in these white go-go boots. And on the back of her skirt is a very famous logo of the uh, design house Courage. And this was not a Courage piece, but they they recreated it and recreated that logo. And if you look at vintage Courage, you can see where they got this um, this design from. And Sharon Stone is in it and she has these white go-go boots and she has that bump in her hair and the flip and she has that frosted lip and she is just like perfect. She is a vision of like who this woman was and would have been at this time and the clothes are just like they're doing so much work in this film Mm -hmm. i mean i always say that like the costuming in any movie is like as important to talk about as the performances because the costuming done well is a performance and like i can't think of another film that exemplifies that more than this movie the most iconic look to me uh through all of this Though not not for, I think any any deeper reasons. I'm not familiar with the the, the fashion history. Uh, is um, toward the end when she is dressed in this brown leather 
jacket, Mm -hmm. uh, very warm looking. Um, And she has this hairstyle, which I say this with all the utmost respects in the world, Mm -hmm. but it's the only point of comparison I can think of. Like, um, do you remember Kate Gosselin? I was literally going to say it's the Kate Gosselin cut. It's the the Karen haircut is is what it is. It's a little bit like David Bowie, like Ziggy Stardust Mm. haircut too. There was was not the the sort of... uh, Karen stereotype in 1981 or no. 82 or whenever this. Was she looks great. Yet. She looks great in it. I just want to say that's the only thing I can compare it to. But she has um yeah, like those um I think the hoop earrings mm-hmm. alongside it, and I remember thinking, and this is the okay. I will preface this by saying this is this is the most crude thing that I will say throughout this entire thing, and I, I hate being crude. <laughs> um, but I. I I saw that scene of her plowing into Robert De Niro's car. Then she gets out and she's just freaking out. And she's just like flailing her arms and she's so fucking mad. Um, and, and like before that, she, before she stayed out all night, she like just says like, fuck you, Ace. Fuck you. And I'm just thinking like, there has never been a more gorgeous woman on this planet. No. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I, if, if Sharon Stone in that outfit, in that look, wanted to insult me in that way, <laughs> to destroy my personal property, I mean, if I tell other people, like, they'll understand. Like, I, yes. I'll, I'll let it happen. Like, Absolutely. God. Yeah. I mean, so beat the living shit out of me, that's, Sharon Stone. I mean, that is the allure of Sharon Stone. I mean, that's basic instinct too, right? Where it's like this yeah. woman is so sexy that like I would literally let her murder me and multiple <laughs> other people. Like, like destroy my career and then actually murder me because she's so hot. Do you guys know no. about the uh, San Francisco road rage story about Sharon Stone? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. No, I don't. I want to hear this. Oh, you have to tell it Well, I, I don't know the, the details of it. I'll let you actually explicate on it. But one of the jokes that I was going to make initially was that it's nice that somebody uh, allowed Sharon Stone just to act in a movie the way she does when she's behind <laughs> the wheel of a car. Uh, <laughs> but go ahead. You, you can explain a little bit of the detail. Uh, there's no story other than the fact that there is a, a person who got into like a road raid in- incident with Sharon Stone in San Francisco because <laughs> she lives here. I don't know if she still does, but she did for a long time. And she's got that giant house up in uh, Sausalito where she murders people just like <laughs> in basic instinct. Yeah. Um, no, she actually lived in San Francisco like proper mm-hmm. for a while. Um, there's this very famous story of this person, just a, a pleb stopping short or like maybe cutting her oh, off. I don't know. Um, and she flipped out on this person, like gets out of her car, yelling, screaming, like the whole nine yards, like just like, you know, un- unmitigated road rage at its finest. And like, the thing is, is like, if that happened to you, like, as you guys are saying, like, you're like, yeah, do whatever you want. Yeah, Sharon like, I, des- I deserve <laughs> like, this. Also, like, just keep yelling. Just just a little bit. <laughs> just keep yelling. Yeah, like, my one thing that I will say about living in the Bay Area my whole life um, and maybe seeing people that happen to live here occasionally is I was on the Bay Bridge, which is um, the bridge that goes from the East Bay across the water to San Francisco and vice versa. We're really the nicer of the two bridges, but the less iconic oh, and yeah. historic. No, 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 no. When it's I would the drive the one that was a noodle. From... 
during the 89 earthquake. If you've ever seen footage of it, it, it actually like... I, I'm going to assert my Bay Area cred. I, I visited the Bay Area many times as a child. I remember the Bay Bridge very distinctly. That was a great bridge. It's a good um, bridge. It's a bridge. Yeah. It's still a, no, 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 no. The Golden Gate Bridge was always like really far out of the way. And then you go across it and there's nothing really over there. Um, meanwhile, the Bay Bridge is between two lively cities. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's proper. It has a use other than taking touristic photos of it. And yeah. also, 100%. I hate it. It sparkles at night. Well, that's a new thing. It yeah. didn't use to. Well, I know, but, no, but it's, it sparkles at night. But yeah. I saw her in her silver Mercedes on the Bay Bridge wow. once. I was driving next to her and I was like, oh, fuck, that's Sharon Stone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would have Wonderful. just crashed into her. And I been like, almost did. Let's, like, just, uh, let's just make this an incident. Like, let I was me, trying really hard like, to not oops, lose my I, shit. I rear-ended Sharon Stone. I guess I got to spend the next 45 minutes with you exchanging insurance information. She was driving herself, dogs. Like, this woman is, she, you know, she's not like getting carted around in a limousine. Yeah. <laughs> I heard this story once and I totally believe it. She was on Bumble for a while. Oh my and God. And she got banned because people were reporting her for impersonation and she was confused by it because she was the real Sharon Stone. Stop it. I, this is a real story. I, 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 this actually, I, I swear by it. If that it's not rocks. true, what then the I have What the fuck would you even do? If you no, <laughs> there's, there's, I, I believe it because there's so many instances, like at least there used to be when I was more active on Tinder. Uh, of like people um, like putting celebrities in their photos, yeah. oh yeah, and like expecting you to like be like a moron who thinks that like that's actually them. But like, I don't know. You see Sharon Stone it, with photos that clearly aren't from like a red carpet event. It's like, yeah, hmm. I think you, I gotta think about this, right? Like, like you do what, like a reverse like, Google search on it. It's like, oh, this is real. Like, imagine meeting up with her and being like, and like thinking it's like some other person who you just happen to have like a really great conversation with, but you're like, oh, they're not Sharon Stone. It's fine. But like, I really enjoy talking to them. Sure. Let's go on a date. And then you get there and it's <laughs> fucking Sharon Stone. What? I mean, that would rock. Can you imagine getting like a, like a 2 a.m. like Bumble message that's just like you up from Sharon Stone like <laughs> wanting you to come over. My she life. she would have I'm more tact. Um, she <laughs> no, she. I mean, she would probably just say "come over" and then you'd be like, "You got it, Sharon Stone." Oh, holy absolutely. fucking shit, Aaron! Uh, Aaron, it's nearly 1 a.m. Right I can't now, I can't Sheena. be I can't be thinking about. <sighs> Sorry, I'm sleepy, Sharon Stone. <laughs> text me text me tomorrow, Fuck. Sharon. I have things yeah. to do. Please. <laughs> No, that's that's when Please I'm like. Please be respectful of my time, Sharon no. Stone. For, forgive me for being crude now, but that's when I like boof a five-hour energy and like decide I'm up for the foreseeable future. Oh my like. god! <laughs> I would, I would Sorry, like absolutely encourage you being on Bumble if it meant just you could, to meet you could meet Sharon Stone. Oh, a singular alas, goal. Alas, Left she's no longer. Else. She's no longer allowed to pursue romantic encounters on the internet because she's too famous she has to go on what's it raya or whatever now i do just want to close uh the sharon stone piece uh by saying that i think it's really remarkable when i read her talking about this role and her role in basic instinct you know she talks about like sort of understanding that she could be beautiful in playing these women. And I just like love the idea of Sharon Stone, like sort of like 
realizing the power of like how you know like devastatingly stunning she is in in playing these roles and like just kind of like running with that yeah. <laughs> like I, I love that i mean the devastation that just seen the gif of her binding her own wrists in uh her like active wear and her little like uh, aerobics gear from Total Recall. Total Recall. The, the, the causes <laughs> a, it, it's get the fuck out. Nuts. I will nuts. if I can if I can bring it into a nice uh, thematic bow. Yes. With what we've been talking about, uh, an attempt to escape from <laughs> just talking about how hot <laughs> Sharon Stone is. Um, I think if a woman, I there, there's typically the emphasis on like the physical beauty aspect of it what keeps a person inside of a relationship longer than its natural expiration point. But also once you place that projection of trust, that projection of the ideal onto another person, no matter how bad it gets, you always return to that old perception that you created at some point in the past Mm -hmm. and it always burns at you and you struggle to figure out a way back um, even when it's completely impossible. Um, And that's why I think the film is so compelling as a a character study. Um, Brilliant film. Wonderful film. Great film. Uh, No notes. Um, five yeah. five stars. No, no, five stars. Four four and a half stars and a heart. Maybe who knows? I don't know where we're at with it. Um, but what you're talking about there, Seamus, I think is a good way to get us just back on track and to like conclude with some like final like big picture thoughts about the movie, which is like it's got a lot of like recursive elements to it and these sort of cycles uh, that you know we've already talked about this kind of like purgatorial sense of. You know, uh, just this, what what I called to myself, the experience of uh, Ace Rothstein's cosmic cuckolding, like over and <laughs> over again. Like, like he's, I mean, there's no other way to, to express it, I think, except for that. Like, I mean, he, he is, uh, you know, very much the master of his own demise mm-hmm. in this film, but there is something in this movie too, to me that has a, a sort of sociopolitical angle to it. That is that here in 1995, it is a film that is reckoning with uh, and, and playing out alongside a sort of disintegration of the middle class. uh, And that this movie has a lot of that on its mind, specifically in the time period that it takes place during that it is, sort of after the material heyday of, of the mid-century and, and the 60s. And, you know, the 70s are kind of a period of, of excess as well, but that it slowly starts to kind of disintegrate over the course of this movie. That uh, the stability of, of it, you know, is is collapsing. And that Ace as a character, you know, has these sort of high highs and this like material level of, influence and power uh and and you know gets nice things but then at a certain point winds up where he began at at the beginning of things like even before we we meet him in the movie you know just as like uh 
a handicapper, just some guy earning for the bosses now in old age, you know, like not even getting to really retire, just like doing the whole thing over again. Um, and I, I know that to me was potent and it feels like it kind of almost has echoes of like we've already talked about stuff that happens in the Irishman as well. You know, this kind of like doing all of this for, for absolutely nothing at the end of things. Yeah. Um, the main lesson that I take away more and more from Scorsese's filmography uh, as I as I get into old age, uh, at the age of twenty four, I was just going to say uh... no. Like all, all you I'm going to say, an ancient wisdom about you, thank Seamus. You. A real all, all ancient gonna, wisdom, all... not a not a Rumsfeld ancient wisdom. Not a Rumsfeld ancient <laughs> wisdom. All, all I will say in my defense of that statement uh, is that um, many, many, many people um, from going on from when I was in eighth grade uh, have thought that I was thirty, and it just has continued from there. <laughs> I believe um, that. I thought you were 30 uh, when we first met. It happens. I, I understand. But um, the main thing that I get is that um, for all of the quote-unquote good things, the trappings of them, um, not only is all of it temporary, but all of it is hollow um, to the point where none of it seems worth it. To mm-hmm. the point where I, even for all of the supposedly good things you might see in Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street is a more recent example, there's no entry point where I would be like, I would be willing to risk this to do this. All of it seems miserable yeah. uh, to a certain extent. Um, that being said, when I did see The Wolf of Wall Street when I was, I think... 13 or 14 i did do a stock simulator for like two days <laughs> and, I, and I i and then i lost ten thousand dollars and i realized i really, really wasn't cut out for it yeah um but in my in my mature years now i i understand what he means notably at the end of this movie there's a tease for the sequel the wolf of wall street where he mentions that the new uh mm. las vegas corporatized centralized uh losing all of its grit in favor of a more kind of disneyland aesthetic and vibe to it uh is financed with junk bonds right that that's that's where all the money's coming from in this new era because that's what the corporations are built on right exactly um yeah the 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 literal changing landscape of vegas is a is a really interesting point i think for Scorsese to end the film on because uh, they did actually like blow up the old strip. Like mm-hmm. they did actually. Yeah, he didn't fake that footage. No, no like. they 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 blew all of these colossal uh, buildings of old Vegas and old Hollywood in Vegas up. Um, and if you if you've been to Vegas and you go to older parts of the strip that are still intact, I mean, it's like haunting is not even the right word. It's yeah. like. It is a very eerie, um, strange place to be. And I think that that, you know, sort of note to end on the the kind of looming future of corporations built on junk bonds, blowing everything up and and sort of sanitizing and centralizing everything speaks to what I take this film to be about um, and 
perhaps more resonantly because of what's happening in the world right now, which is that like America is like not fucking worth it. Like Mm. it is not fucking worth any of it. All of this bullshit that we care about. And I'm sorry to just like get pissed for a second, but like, I need to be, you know, the conveniences, finger quotes, the, you know, extra brands of whatever that we get to choose from the DoorDash app. What the fuck ever? Like none of it is worth it. None of it is worth the absolute monstrosity that this country is and has been since its inception, since Mm -hmm. before it was a country. And I just like, I couldn't help but think about that watching this movie, just watching like all of these like, jewels and blood and like buildings and dealings and men and whatever like and just thinking about what a a perfect vision of like how completely empty banal and ugly all of the things that we take pride in scare quotes as america are and the expense at which those things come, often obfuscated by bright flashing lights and entertainment mm-hmm. and sex and food and fucking lobster and whatever else, right? Like, I just, like, I I don't think I would have gotten there if I watched this movie, like, four years ago or whatever. Um, and it's, like, all I could think about watching this film yeah. is just how not worth it all of this bullshit is Seamus I don't I don't think that you have seen Scorsese's latest Killers of the Flower Moon yet is that correct no um, it did funnily enough which I was shocked by it, it, it has come out here oh okay. uh, really? in Lebanon yeah it's getting a wide release um, alongside hold on um, th- the thing to know about Lebanon is that um, we get either the worst films you've ever seen um, <laughs> I, or really I, good ones in theatrical releases that we don't even get here. Yeah, the because States. they can only afford it. So right now, Killers of the Flower Moon is showing alongside uh, Deep Fear, which is a ripoff of Cocaine Bear, but with a shark. Stop. Hell yeah. And uh, <laughs> Expendables 4. Four. Okay. All right. Expend four bowls. Expend, uh, expend four bowls. Expend four bowls. Uh, yeah. 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 But it's, I'm uh, going to go see it soon. Yeah. By any means, I, I won't uh, talk about it too at length here because I, I want you to go in relatively fresh. But the thing that you're talking about, and I think that Carly's getting at too, you know, this idea of just like the absolute monstrosity of the country, the blood that it is founded on and built on. And and your point, Seamus, about like, you know, that that kind of perception we have and, and as we watch these characters, that kind of like, you know, like personal shield we put up against it, that's sort of like, there's no point in this at which I would like cross that threshold and like make that decision to go along with this for whatever sort of like material securities there are. Scorsese is evolving in the, that movie. And, and to me, one of the central things about it is how the self-deception and the participation in the evil is like nigh compulsory that like 
you know, DiCaprio's character, like there's no scene where he like is like offered up like the decision on a platter and is told like, do you want to do crime and be evil? He like before you you know it, you're, you know, halfway through this movie and he is like party to unspeakable things. And you realize that like there was never a moment where he crossed the threshold. There's never a moment where he like actively made the decision. He just sort of went along with everything. And there are these like, you know, brutal truths in his face. And yet he's still like willing to self-deceive to the point of saying like, you know, like this thing there, there's, there's a good reason for it, or there's like a justification or there's like a moral kind of like spine to something about this. And it's just, I mean, it's devastating, but it is also, I think, very much of a piece with all of Marty's films about crime and about villainy and about these kinds of characters, which is just like, you know, like they, they almost don't even make the decision. They just like participate. They just go along with it at a certain point. And that complicity is something that like, you know, like it, not just one person is a guilty party. They're all a guilty party in this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my, I'm I'm paying for people to get blown up right now. I mean, that I'm, that's what I mean is, you know, like it's it's simple my enough to see. My money is contributing to people actively being murdered. Yeah. And, and there's like almost no way to not do that, right? Like there's no there's no way that doesn't, you know, put us in the stocks that <laughs> like we we get to just like make a conscientious decision to not do that thing. Yeah. It's I understand why you left Seamus. I looked at Aaron the other night and I said, I, I hate this place. I don't want to be here anymore. Like there's just like you you can't live here. And like, as you said, like have uh, uh, any semblance of sanity. There's too much you are forced to compartmentalize and like and like suppress to just exist in this place. I felt insane being separated from it all mm. um, for even like a brief amount of time. Mm. Um, so I, I made plans pretty much immediately to come back once I had, once I had left when things were popping off. And then now that I'm here, my mental health is like zoomed basically all the way up um, despite it all. Um, no, no. When, when you When you make the effort to try and heal those those divisions within yourself mm-hmm. um it does pay off uh in certain respects but that's that's a large discussion well that means that we're going to be coming to live with you in beirut very soon so get the <laughs> get the mattresses ready for us we'll be there uh within the week oh the, dog the, dog there's three bedrooms like come on <laughs> oh, hey perfect well then we're we're ready to rock and roll no uh but kidding aside you know like it it's felt crazy making for like the last month now. Um, just, uh, I mean, that discordance, that that compartmentalization that Carly's talking about. Uh, and, and I know, you know, we, we already said it at the beginning and not to, you know, like embarrass you or, or make you feel like, you know, more coy or anything like that at the end here. But like, thank you, Seamus, for like the work that you do and, and just being somebody who's willing to look at it every single day on our behalf and to speak about it and to be truthful and to get it out there to an audience as, as big as you are, as yours is. And, um, uh, I don't know, in, indispensable, I think is the word I used previously. And I'll, and I'll say it again, like the work that you're doing, the, the stuff 
that you're sharing is indispensable in this moment. And uh, I'm really, really thankful to know you. I will hawk your wares and say everyone should be (laughs) subscribing to Seamus's Substack. It is uh, something I'm very glad to have access to and uh, especially in times like these. So that's my plug. That, that, yeah, that is the only feasible plug I could I could give. Um, I should say <laughs> that, yeah, if you can, if you do enjoy what I write, please do subscribe to just because like that is what allows me to do this for a living. Um, otherwise, I I would have to do other things uh, in order to have an income. But I, I'm thankful that I'm able to do that as as my way of going about things. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll make sure to we link. Uh, we'll make sure to link to that Substack uh, in the show notes to make sure that everyone can find it easily enough uh, as well as ways to follow you on the internet since it's becoming harder by the day to search you. <laughs> um, <laughs> insane. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll make sure to, to link to all of that and, and make sure that people can, can see the things that we're seeing and uh, have the opportunity to support you. Seamus, we really uh, appreciate you again for coming on the show and talking about something that, uh, that isn't the, the mess going on in the world right now for a little bit. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, from our end of things, we uh, are followable as well at Hit Factory Pod. We are also subscribable. Uh, as well uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Um, you can subscribe to the show there to get the full Hit Factory experience and uh, let us uh, put more of ourself and our energy into this show and uh, and making it for you. We'll give a shout out to our overlords. Thank you for your continued support, Linda and Jared Murray. And with that, we will see you all, catch you all, hear you all the next time. Take care.